Welcome to Women's HealthCast, a podcast from the University of Wisconsin Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'm Jackie Askins. With this podcast, I'll be exploring issues and innovations around women's health with a little help from experts in the UW Department of OBGYN. May is Preeclampsia Awareness Month. Preeclampsia is a hypertensive pregnancy disorder that affects up to 8% of pregnancies. Uh, But despite affecting that many, there's still a lot we don't know about it. Why does it happen? How can we predict or prevent it? Why are we still using the same diagnosis and treatment tools that were developed in the 1960s? To learn more about preeclampsia, the current clinical care standards, and new discoveries on the horizon, I talked to two experts in the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN. Kara Hoppe is a maternal fetal medicine specialist in the department. She deals with all kinds of complex pregnancy conditions, including hypertensive disorders like preeclampsia. I asked Dr. Hoppe about diagnostic criteria for preeclampsia, what she does when a patient develops the condition, and how hypertensive issues during pregnancy can affect your health later in life. Welcome, Dr. Hoppy. So I wanted to talk to you in particular because I know you're our department's sort of go-to expert on preeclampsia. Um, before we learn a little bit more about that disorder and what it can mean for your patients, I'd like to learn about you and your background. Well, I'm originally from Wisconsin, and I lived here th- Uh, through high school and in Minnesota through college, um, and then have moved around the country thereafter. Um, I've always worked in healthcare from a very young age, uh, starting as a nursing assistant in high school, um, and then working in different uh, nursing homes and group uh, homes uh, for individuals uh, who are elderly or disabled, you know, through that period of time, but knew that um, I would have a lifelong career in uh, medicine in some capacity to just be able to care for people and do what I love. Why did you want to become a doctor? To be honest, I think I probably get those roots from my mom. Uh, She was an obstetric nurse, and I have really fond memories growing up visiting labor and delivery, seeing the babies in the nursery, um, and really the importance of healthcare for people. Uh, I loved science, uh, learning about the human body throughout childhood, um, and I ultimately saw that medicine could be a way that I could fulfill a lot of my lifelong goals. Um, I then ended up doing obstetrics and gynecology, again, maybe circling back to my... um, roots for my mom, but also it provided me an opportunity to treat women and uh, all walks of life uh, with diversity of uh, care that women need. So you are a fellowship-trained maternal-fetal medicine specialist. Tell me a little bit about what that means, how your work looks maybe different from a general OBGYN practice? Obstetrics and gynecology is a very wide range of care that we provide to women. I think in the most general terms, people seek an OBGYN when they're pregnant or they need some sort of gynecologic care. However, there's a lot of subspecialty areas of practice uh, beyond just general OBGYN, um, which may include family planning needs or cancer or um, a high-risk mom or baby throughout a pregnancy. Um, Also, beyond just general OBGYN, um, a lot of those subspecialty trainings are tied uh, with doing academic research initiatives. And I felt to combine all that together, maternal-fetal medicine allowed me to really focus on caring for women who uh, who had a high-risk maternal, meaning the mom, or a fetal, meaning their unborn baby's conditions that could complicate their pregnancy, Um, and that that was a really special place that I could um, effectively optimize outcomes for moms and babies and also allow me to stay dedicated to academic medicine and research um, to improve our ability to actually care for people who are pregnant and postpartum. 
May is Preeclampsia Awareness Month, which is pretty much why I was so interested in talking to you. I'm hoping you can provide a little bit of background about preeclampsia. What what is this condition? Well, preeclampsia is a disorder that uh, occurs when people are pregnant, um, and also in the postpartum period, which people are less aware of. Uh, it can affect the mom as well as her unborn baby. Um, left untreated, it's really a rapidly progressive condition um, that's characterized in the very basics with high blood pressure and the presence of protein in the urine. Um, Typically, it occurs after 20 weeks in the pregnancy, um, or that might be better known as the late second or third trimesters of the pregnancy, and really up to six weeks postpartum. Um, Rarely, rarely it can happen before 20 weeks, but that's very atypical. Do we know what causes it? Well, that is a very good question, and if I knew the answers, or anyone really knew the answers, um, I think that there would be a lot involved in finding the answers out. So to be honest, it's not really completely understood. Um, There are some theories out there, and most of them deal with the placenta, and they talk about it kind of in two stages. So the first really is um, the initiating cause, which results in the placenta-producing factors that enter into the mom's blood system, and those um, are thought to really kind of aggravate or produce this next stage, which would be the second stage, and that causes the mom to exhibit this disease of high blood pressure, Um, and perhaps um, spillage of protein from the kidneys. And it may also, in severe cases, affect the liver or some of the blood clotting abilities in the body. The end result, really, is that the health of the mom and maybe the baby is affected, and we know that it affects um, the mom's blood system and the heart and the kidneys and the liver, Um, but we really don't know what triggers that, and we don't know how to prevent it. Um, there's a lot of basic research being done worldwide to really understand this um, and to really be able to find successful treatments um, or prevention, preventative methods uh, for preeclampsia. But um, today's state is we just don't understand it completely. How common is preeclampsia? Preeclampsia affects about 5 to 8% of all pregnancies. Um, there are particular high-risk people that uh, may be at higher risk, but in general, 5 to 8% of pregnancies However, globally, preeclampsia and other hypertension-related disorders in pregnancy are uh, one of the leading causes of maternal and infant illness and death. Um, And then by some conservative estimates, these disorders are responsible for 76,000 maternal and 500,000 infant deaths per year. Okay, so you mentioned there might be some risk factors or something that might predispose a person to developing preeclampsia. What can those include? The United States Preventative Services Health Task Force um, have identified high-risk um, predisposing factors. Those would include people who have had a prior pregnancy with preeclampsia, a multifetal gestation or being pregnant with more than one baby at a time, chronic hypertension, uh, type 1 or 2 diabetes, renal disease, um, or other autoimmune disorders like NFS with antibody syndrome or lupus. Um, There are other risk factors that we classically talk about. Um, The word nulliparity may be used, or meaning that this is the woman's first pregnancy, Um, obesity. Uh, People who've had a family history, neither their mom or their sister, um, their age being over 35, also to some known as advanced maternal age. Um, And then there uh, there tends to be higher um, rates of preeclampsia among African-American women. 
and also uh, people who have had a history of low birth weight infants or other adverse pregnancy outcomes. How can you tell if one of your patients has developed preeclampsia? That's another good question. So much of the time you can tell. However, there are uh, people who don't exhibit signs or symptoms, and that can lead to difficulty when trying to inform them that they have a diagnosis of preeclampsia. So um, a lot of the symptoms people may um, experience might might be symptoms they would feel if they just had a viral infection or they just weren't feeling well or maybe they cope it up to being pregnant. Um, but things that you can actually um, identify would be actual signs, so things that you can measure, which would be blood pressures and spillage of protein in the urine. And those are classically done at all prenatal care visits um, and may be done more frequently if somebody has an actual symptom of preeclampsia. Um, actual signs and symptoms of preeclampsia, like I said, can be pretty generalizable, but common things would be new swelling, headaches, nausea, vomiting, um, abdominal pain or shoulder pain, some low back pain, a really sudden increase in weight, which goes along with that swelling, um, changes in their vision, um, their reflexes might be really overactive, and sometimes they get short of breath or feel anxious. What can happen if preeclampsia goes untreated or undetected? The only cure to preeclampsia is actually delivery. So if you leave um, preeclampsia untreated, it can be a rapidly progressive disorder that um, leads to hypertension that may become uncontrollable or very dangerous. Um, the end result of that could lead to injury of the brain, such as stroke or your liver, um, leading to impairment of the kidneys and the liver themselves. Uh, you can get pulmonary edema or a fluid buildup in the lungs. Um, rarely, but uh, severe cases of preeclampsia have seizures. Um, and if left untreated, you can have maternal or infant death. So you have a patient present with preeclampsia. What happens next? What do you do? How do you care for them? So I think you kind of have to stratify it a little bit with women who are just presenting for routine prenatal care um, because it's quite common that you see that their blood pressures are increasing. Like I said before, they're not symptomatic. You uh, then as an obstetrician or very skilled, or an obstetrical provider, you're very skilled at saying, well, if people's blood pressures are going up, I better check to make sure they're not spilling protein. They may or may not be, but you at least know that you need to watch them closer and that there is a risk of blood pressures, you know, increasing and escalating and getting to dangerous levels. Um, so the very basics, um, I guess, would be just checking blood pressures, seeing the patient more um, frequently, and following for protein. If protein develops um, in the urine and they have an official diagnosis of preeclampsia, you really want to know, are they symptomatic? Some of those symptoms we talked about. And that puts people in a more kind of severe, higher risk preeclampsia category. Um, and depending on the gestational age that a woman might be when they get preeclampsia, we may uh, have inpatient um, uh, recommendations for them to stay in the hospital for really close monitoring. They may or may not be able to go home for a little bit of time, but ultimately they will all have a preterm birth or a delivery before their expected delivery date. And in the mildest cases, they would stay pregnant possibly to 37 weeks. Um, and in really severe cases, that delivery all, uh, often ends up in a preterm delivery. Again, going back to we don't have an effective way to stop this once it starts. And sometimes people can stay pregnant longer than others, but um, when a woman is sick enough or the baby is sick enough, we just have to deliver them. So as we've been discussing, preeclampsia is a pregnancy condition. Can it only develop during pregnancy? That's a very good question, and I think in general the answer is yes. However, 
I want to emphasize that um, women may not have evidence of preeclampsia before delivery, and they deliver, and then after birth, anywhere up to six weeks, they actually start getting new hypertension. The actual incidence of how often that happens is uncertain, um, but it is really important that people understand that um, it, that people still are at risk, even if they didn't have evidence of it during their delivery or immediate delivery, but they can again for six weeks postpartum. What uh, what should new moms be keeping an eye out for, kind of monitoring themselves for um, in that immediate postpartum period? You know, women are going to be tired and they're going to be exhausted from caring for a new baby, but if they're experiencing symptoms similar to the ones we've already discussed above um, that seem out of the ordinary for just newly being home and sleep or, you know, fatigued from taking care of their baby, that they really should contact their doctor. And it may require them getting their blood pressure checked, but it may ultimately keep them safe from an adverse outcome like we talked about. So what happens after that immediate postpartum period, after that first six, eight weeks? Are there any more long-term health effects related to preeclampsia that might not show up until women are much older? There are um, actually known long-term risks um, due to actually cardiovascular disease. And so that risk is thought to be about three to four times higher in women who had preeclampsia than those that have not. And more specifically, um, the risk of stroke is about doubled. And the risk of developing hypertension is about four times higher than that in women who didn't have preeclampsia. Um, and also other um, severe heart disease like heart failure um, is elevated similar to the stroke risk. So is there something people should do? Do you have suggestions for what people should do after they have a preeclamptic pregnancy? Yeah, I think that um, an awareness that they had um, preeclampsia in their pregnancy is really important. Um, if it is a severe case like we talked about, um, in future um, pregnancy plannings, I would suggest seeing a provider or or having preconception counseling about what their risks might be and how we would manage their pregnancies differently. Um, now it is a current um, guideline that women who have a history of preeclampsia should take a baby aspirin. We typically start that around 14 to 6 weeks of pregnancy. And so uh, one of the actual Wisconsin State uh, initiatives for hypertension has really been tracking how well people are um, being started on a baby aspirin for pregnancy. So I expect we'll see that improved in Wisconsin. But, you know, any woman should just feel entitled to ask their provider, like, hey, I heard aspirin was a good thing to take and it may prevent preeclampsia this pregnancy. And then furthermore, um, acknowledging that they had preeclampsia, they now think that they're cured, their blo high blood pressure went away, but that they actually have long-term uh, health risks that may be associated with this, and that they should establish yearly care with a primary care provider. They should have vigilant monitoring of their blood pressures because we know they're at risk for getting hypertension. And that they, you know, think about um, adopting healthy lifestyle choices, things like um, if they have diabetes, managing their glucoses, high cholesterol, uh, obesity and weight loss, smoking, smoking cessation. Um, so really adopting a heart-healthy lifestyle might help reduce their overall cardiovascular uh, risk outcomes for their future. Thank you so much for joining us on the Women's HealthCast. What else do you think people should know about preeclampsia? I think that um, just every woman having a general awareness that there's nothing to protect any individual person from getting preeclampsia, that everybody is at risk for it. There are certain people who are at higher risk. Um, but if you're ever not feeling well and um, you're told you have preeclampsia, sorry, if you, if you are not feeling well, um, to really seek your provider and have an evaluation. And if you're told you have preeclampsia, to take it seriously. 
um, and know that uh, it is a really um, dangerous thing to deal with and that we really in America do very well and outcomes tend to be well for those women. Um, but I think um, I also want to emphasize that we have a special relationship with our basic scientists here at UW-Madison and that they are working to find um, ways to understand why this happens and preventative and treatment strategies for the future. Um, and I just hope that further research initiatives continue not only here but um, worldwide. How can people learn more and support awareness and research for this condition? Well, um, locally, the Promise Walk for Preeclampsia is actually uh, June 2nd here in Madison. And we have um, a Meritor Clinic uh, perinatology slash OBGYN team set up, so we would encourage anyone to join our team. I also think that the, uh, the neonatology NICU group has their own um, team set up as well. But we have um, many women, up to 20% of our patients here at Merit are delivering with hypertension disorders, and I think this touches a lot of people. So I think anybody, uh, if they could come out and support this walk, would really locally help a lot of people and support a lot of women that go through this. Um, nationally, there's also the Preeclampsia Foundation, and there's always fundraising efforts and also a great website for education that people can look into if they have uh, further interests. Dr. Hoppy told me a lot about the current landscape for preeclampsia care, but I still had questions about what's happening in the research world. And as Dr. Hoppy mentioned, the UW Department of OBGYN is home to a great team of basic science researchers investigating the intricacies of human reproduction. Derek Belt is a lifetime badger. He earned his undergrad and graduate degrees at UW-Madison. He stayed here for his postdoc fellowship, and then he joined the faculty. Since joining our department, Dr. Belt has focused his research on understanding the origins of preeclampsia and pioneering new ways to treat it. Our conversation has been edited for clarity. Can I ask, what about preeclampsia kind of caught your eye as a research focus? You know, I always, I always say that women's health is everybody's health. It's global health. And in helping mothers have more healthy pregnancies, we have healthy babies, and everybody really benefits. And, and this is one of those rare instances where you can research pregnancy, women's health, and preeclampsia occurs in about 3 to 5% of all pregnancies, uh, which isn't a ton, but it's, it's enough. But even through researching diseases or syndromes of pregnancy, we discover things about healthy pregnancy too and, and how to improve pregnancy outcomes across the board. You mentioned there is so much that we don't know about preeclampsia, um, including what causes it. Uh, are there any predictors? Is there anything we can look at to say one person is more likely than someone else to develop it? So I'll start by describing it, by, by describing what we know about what it is and how it develops. So we, we know that it develops very early on and it's most likely related to poor implantation and, and poor remodeling of the uterus. So what happens is the embryo is fertilized, it implants in the wall of the uterus, and it has specialized cells which penetrate into the uterus and prime it for the pregnancy that's about to occur. And actually this starts a little bit during during the menstrual cycle too in preparation, but it really it really kicks into high gear when implantation occurs. And the other main thing that we, we know about this, which really leads to 
sort of where, where my research is focused, is that these specialized cells I was talking about, they're called trophoblast cells. And they migrate up uterine spiral arteries. So that the, these specialized arteries in the uterus uh, that, that basically feed into where the fetus, the placenta is going to be, have to be uh, restructured for the pregnancy. So the main thing that needs to happen is they need to be broadened so that you don't get strong jets of blood into these really delicate fetal structures. So it's not like it's not like the blood shooting in onto a fetus, right? There's a placenta there that's the barrier in between, but it is a very delicate structure. So you need to broaden those arteries so that you can basically slow down the water just like, you know, a river delta where, you know, it becomes broad and slows down. Uh, it's, it's just like that. There's a set amount of, of, of penetration of remodeling that needs to occur. Uh, you can have problems if they over-migrate, but in things like preeclampsia, it's likely that they're not migrating enough, there's not enough remodeling, and so you don't have this sort of um, reduction in blood flow, and it, it seems to set off this cascade of events, which eventually leads you to hypertension in the mother quite a ways down the road, right? Because we're talking past 20 weeks and all these things happen quite early. At least the first steps, steps of them occur quite early. And so that leads us to your question about, uh, about prediction, right? There are things we can do to predict it um, a little bit, but, but we're not very good at it. Which, which makes it a, a little bit difficult from a standpoint of how do, we, how do we manage these pregnancies. But in the end, the, the real problem here is that even if we can predict it, we don't have good treatments. Okay, so even if we come up with a fantastic biomarker that predicts 100% of the time, it's not really going to help our outcomes that much. So that leads me really well into the next question. I want to know um, specifically about your research projects. What are you looking at and what are you hoping to find? What are you hoping to come out of your project with? So I'm looking at fundamental ways in which uh, pregnancies occur properly at the vascular level and ways in which they might go wrong. But I think in terms of things that might be most interesting to uh, a, a broad listener base is the, the therapeutics. But one of the uh, approaches I've taken, to tr or I'm trying to take to sort of circumvent some of these issues of drugs crossing the placenta is to look for uh, diet-based strategies or nutraceuticals, some people might call it. Um, and, and look for naturally occurring compounds in, in foods that we eat. That is, has been really the, probably the major focus of my work and my entire postdoctoral fellowship time. So between when I finished my PhD and started my independent research program, I was working on developing um, our, our knowledge of uh, a, a specific compound called 
1012 conjugated linoleic acid. And the I guess the name really isn't that important. I think what what people should understand about this and why I'm excited about it is it's present in largely in dairy products. Uh, there's various forms of this and they, they have different biological functions or they, they have different biological effects. And so this one in particular seems to uh, block a signaling a cell signaling pathway that I had done quite a bit of work on showing that if you induce that pathway in the endothelial cells which line the blood vessels, um, if you induce that using hormones that are often seen in preeclampsia, you get dysfunctional cells. Um, you put this 1012-CLA compound on there and you can completely reverse that. And so at least in a Petri dish, <laughs> it seems to be working. And, and I think it's exciting because it's something that we're all exposed to, although probably in lower quantities than we should be. We only get that particular form of the CLA compound when the cows or goats or whatever eat standing grass. So if you drank milk from a cow that was fed you know, grain or, or hay. cut grass, hay, uh, there's going to be very low quantities of that particular 1012 CLA isoform. But if you pasture graze, the, that milk is going to have quite a bit of it in there and, and, and in, the, in the meat and everything. And, and CLA is uh, resistant to pasteurization. So you can pasteurize your dairy products. It's shelf stable. It can, you know, it can last in a cheese that's aged and it'll still be biologically active by the time it gets to you. So in the course of your research as it continues to go on, are you learning anything about preeclampsia that's surprising you? The CLA discovery I think was was sort of the closest thing I've had to jumping up and down and popping a bottle of champagne because we um, you know found the Holy Grail. Uh, it's probably not that but I <laughs> But I think the, the, the thing that maybe uh, intellectually was the most surprising to me is that we, we have all the, these women present and, and can present in very different ways and I think have very different um, causes. But when you look at the function of the endothelial cells, we can basically model the dysfunction with the same sort of dysfunction with all different combinations of these things. So it seems like there's sort of a funneling effect. So regardless of which hormones that cell seems to be sensing, at least of the subset that we're interested in, uh, they become, they, they sort of funnel in to become more and more similar. Uh, the further, the closer we get to what we think is ultimately the, 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 the structures in the cell that we think are the, um, the real problem here. Which is also fortuitous for us looking for in, uh, interventions um, because it means that even though we, have, we don't necessarily know exactly how or why any given patient it, how, or, how or why they develop preeclampsia, we might be able to come up with one therapy that 
targets sort of the, the narrow part of that funnel, and no matter what the, the broad inputs are, we can kind of squash that, nip it in the bud um, by having one specific target. It just so happens, by the way, that that, that pathway, that, that narrow pathway, the narrow part of the funnel is the part that CLA, the 1012 CLA targets. So <laughs> That's very optimistic then, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I think there's potential there. Thanks to Dr. Hoppy and Dr. Belt for sitting down with the Women's Health Cast. If you'd like to learn more about preeclampsia and support research efforts, check out promisewalk.org. There are dozens of events around the country, including two in Wisconsin, coming up this spring. We'll add links to the Promise Walks and other support opportunities in the show notes for this episode. Kara King will join us on next month's Women's Health Cast. Dr. King is a minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon, so she's an expert in all sorts of special surgical techniques. I'll talk to her about the new resident curriculum she's creating focused on transgender health care and why it's so important to improve provider education around supporting trans patients. Women's Health Cast is a production of the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can subscribe to Women's Health Cast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at WISCOBGYN. Please let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app, and let us know what women's health issues you would like to learn more about. Thanks for listening. <laughs>